What's the vision of St. Peter's is to be a family on mission to bring people home. I've probably bored you to death with that week after week. Two weeks ago, we looked at what it means to be family as a church. And we said, we believe that church should feel like a family where you can be fully known, where you can be loved for who you are, and where you can become who you're called to be. That's what it means to be a church family together here at St. Peter's. How do we do that? Well, in order to do that, to be fully known, we probably need to be vulnerable with each other. It goes without saying that actually, if we simply just come and put on our Sunday face and we put on our best behavior on Sunday and we appear to have it all together and everything's always going well, actually, that's not really being fully known. We need as a church community to be able to celebrate with each other when things are going really well, but also to be able to be there for each other when things aren't going really well, when it feels like life is tough. And in order to be able to actually do that and be a real family, we need to be vulnerable with each other. Second thing we need to do is forgive freely because it goes without saying, as you open your life, as you become vulnerable with each other, there'll be things on show that aren't just good. So it'll be the good, the bad, and the ugly in your life. You all know what I'm talking about. When you have close relationships, that person who's close to you really knows you inside out. They know everything that's good, but they also know all your weaknesses. And therefore, in order to actually survive and be family, we need to forgive each other freely. We need to show each other the unconditional love of Jesus. And then finally, in order to become who we're called to be, We need to encourage each other often. We need to call out of each other who we feel like God has called um, that person to be. And so there'll be times when you're presenting yourself in a light that really isn't who you were created to be. There'll be times when you're tired and it's hard and you'll be doing things that are unkind and you'll be doing things to each other that really isn't good. And so our job as a community is to actually not see you for who you're presenting yourself to be at any given time, but instead to encourage you to be who you're called to be. That's what it means to be family here at St. Peter's. Secondly, what's the mission? Well, we believe that our lives are fuller and richer in relationship with Jesus. Therefore, our mission as the church is to help other people Meet him. This is the heartbeat of what it means to be a missional church. It is about people connecting with Jesus. As we connect with Jesus, we show other people Jesus. And last week, we looked at the story of the um, woman from Samaria whom Jesus broke down societal, religious, gender boundaries, racial boundaries in order to be able to actually show his love to her. She goes back to the town where she was staying and she says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. And the whole town comes out. And then we we read right at the end of that story that many of that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So how as a church do we engage in mission? We share testimony. What does testimony mean? It's basically relaying first-hand experience of Jesus. So there's two questions along with that. Number one, have you experienced Jesus first-hand? If you haven't, I suggest you ask him. Number two, are you actually telling other people about your experience of Jesus? Are you actually out there speaking to people about him? Because the temptation of a church, basically, is to simply bring people to the church so that we can do the job for you, which isn't a bad thing. And we will do courses that are evangelistic. We will do that sort of thing. But I think what that does is it disempowers the church so often. Because the key of evangelism is for everybody here to be able to know who Jesus is for them so that they can go and tell others who, what Jesus has done. And then as a result, these people will come to believe in Jesus. They'll put their trust in Jesus because your testimony is from firsthand experience. And it's so much more authentic if it comes from you. Because you have that relationship. You're out there doing the stuff. So family on mission. And then finally, this week, family on mission to bring people home. What do I mean by home? So what makes home, home? Well, of course, we have 
our physical home, don't we? So in order to feel at home, we need a roof over our heads. We need warmth in our house. We need running water. We need food. There's something about being human that requires a physical sense of home. But it's not just physical, is it, being at home? It's also emotional. So there'll be a sense in which we feel most at home around those people who love us dearly, who love us unconditionally, our friends, our family, the kind of environment and community where we can go back home and we can just get into our pajamas or our tracksuit and we can just be totally ourselves and completely relaxed and totally at rest. We need home emotionally. And then finally, I would argue there's a third part, a third part to what it means to be fully at home. And the third part is being at home spiritually that our souls are actually restless until we find this greater overarching meaning, this sense of purpose that we really need in order to be able to feel satisfied. And the truth is, all three of those elements of feeling at home, the physical, the emotional, the spiritual, they come under threat at different points in our life. They're actually, if we're brutally honest, fairly fragile. Like, for example, in the winter, your boiler breaks, your house is freezing cold, you go home, it doesn't feel like home. It's freezing. You can't feel at home because it's cold. Physically, our sense of home is actually quite fragile. Happens to me all the time. In fact, for me, it's always rats. I always have, for some reason, every house I'm ever in, like, there's rats. Like, our previous house... I had this rat that literally eyeballed me and we fought it for months until it finally died under my um, daughter's bed and caused a stink. It was horrible. Anyway, that's not the point. The point is, let's think about boilers, not rats. Physical, your physical home is fragile. It can be put at risk. Emotional home, where you feel at home emotionally, that can be fragile too, can't it? Like, everyone knows how toxic it is when you live in an environment where there's relational dysfunction and pain and disunity. You go home and you feel on edge. Like you can cut the tension with a knife. It doesn't feel like you can be at home. It doesn't feel like you can relax. And then spiritually, you can also feel like your sense of home is fragile and has been undermined. Those times where we go home from work and we're like, what am I doing with my life? There is no purpose to anything I'm doing. And you feel that existential crisis where you're like, what is the overarching meaning to all of this? So home is fragile. What does this have to do with church? Well, there's a theme throughout the entire Bible on this theme of home, on this central thing about being at home. There's loads of themes running out for the Bible, but this is one of the main themes that you can trace right the way through the history of God's people. It starts in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve are created by God so as to enjoy this physical paradise, this physical paradise of Eden, where everything is right, where it's all as it's supposed to be. But it's not just a physical and an emotional, it's emotional home as well for those guys. They were able to be naked, and we all know when you can air dry at home or you can do your ironing naked, you really do feel at home. It's a place where you can be fully at home. But it's not just physical. It's not just emotional. It's also spiritual. Because there's this line in there where it says they walk with God in the cool of the evening. What happens in the cool of the evening? Well, I imagine if we ever had cool of the evening here, you'd share your day with the person you're walking with. You'll say, this is what's going on. This is how I'm feeling. You kind of have a debrief. They were, they were spiritually at home in God's presence. So it started with Adam and Eve, then there's the crisis of the fall, and this essentially sends humanity spinning into this spiral of homelessness. 
of homelessness. Essentially, they believed the lie that actually the grass was greener on the other side, that if they were to be God of their own lives, then they would feel more at home than they were feeling at home in the current place. And therefore, they enter into this spiral of homelessness that carries on throughout the whole of the Bible. You see this in the nation of Israel. They're in slavery under the Egyptians. They're led out of slavery into the wilderness. There's this constant sense that they're homeless. They're on a journey. They're trying to get back home again. And then David in Psalm 84, famous Psalm says this, this is the spiritual sense that they're lost and homeless. He says, my soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord, for the home of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for his presence. That encapsulates what the nation of Israel, God's people, actually felt like. Their flesh was crying out for this presence of God. And we see this continue throughout the Old Testament. Even when they move into the promised land, we see kings who are corrupt, who are leading over the, leading over the nations of Israel and just bring in foreign idols and this sense of spiritual home is totally undermined. And then this end of the Old Testament is basically this drought of God's presence. In the Old Testament, they believe God's presence came through the prophets who were speaking on behalf of God and God hadn't spoken for something like 300 years. And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus essentially is born to bring us home. And Jesus is both fully at home in the physical, in the human, but he's fully at home in the spiritual. Fully human, fully divine. And as Christians, if we put our trust and we live our life through him and in him, we also have this ability to be able to come back home physically, spiritually, and emotionally. There's an amazing promise that Jesus makes about the Holy Spirit. So as he gives out, he's speaking to his disciples. I've got to go. It's better that I go so that you can have this. And he says this in John 14, 23. He says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And then he says, my father will love them. And this direct translation, we will come and make our home with them. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means that God The Spirit, Jesus, is making their home in you. And of course, there's moments where that doesn't feel like it's the case. We sang about it earlier, didn't we? Um, God, let your kingdom come, your will be done. Um, The idea is actually we live in this tension now. We live in what theologians call the now and not yet. We have glimpses of what it means to feel home, both physically, emotionally, spiritually, but also we're longing for a time where God's presence essentially is fully with us and that's what revelation is all about at the end of the bible and there's a key bit in the book of revelation where john who wrote it basically has this vision of god coming down and then god says this god's home is now among his people he will live with them and they will be his people we're looking forward to this time when his presence is fully with us we have this constant longing for the presence of god so why is that the case Why do we feel spiritually homeless until we've encountered him? Well, I believe it's because core to who we are is this simple truth. We are most at home in the presence of God. We were created to enjoy the presence of God. One of the most written about verses in the Bible is in Genesis 1.26 where God says that he made humankind, man, woman, Adam, Eve in his image and in his likeness. Literally more books written in theology about that one line than anything else in the Bible. And the reason it's so written about is because it goes core to this question, this existential question that all of humanity is constantly asking, who am I? 
And so how we interpret that line is crucial in terms of our faith, but crucial in terms of humanity in general. And theologians basically, those two words, image and likeness, um, in the Hebrew are used very little in the rest of the Old Testament. The way they normally work out what words actually mean is they look at other uses of it in the Old Testament. There's very little use of it other than to refer to idols, basically um, stone and wood idols of other foreign religions. Um, if you look at ancient Near Eastern literature, which was written at exactly the same time as the Genesis creation account, the only use of those two words, image and likeness in the Hebrew, basically is exactly the same. It's to refer to the idols of God, basically the idols of the foreign gods. And so these idols are actually clearly fairly significant as to be us to be able to answer, who am I? What is humanity? What does it mean to be human? And so when you look at these idols, basically the ancient Near Eastern religions would carve these ornate stone and wood idols of their gods and then they go through this really weird kind of birthing process whereby they birth this statue into being and then they put it in a part of their kingdom and they would give it food and they give it water and the whole point of the whole process is that for the believers of those ancient Near Eastern religions, the idol, the wood, the stone carving literally embodied the presence of the God it represented. And so they place it around the kingdom, in other kingdoms, in order to be able to claim other kingdoms. And so this is a profound thing when you consider what the writer of Genesis is actually trying to say here. The whole of Genesis, or the creation account anyway, is basically written as a polemic of all of the other creation narratives of the time. So ancient Near East and creation narratives is essentially humanity was born out of chaos and out of war. The gods were at war, this Greek mythology, gods are at war and humanity is created and therefore we enter into chaos. The whole point of the creation narrative of Genesis is it's a polemic, it's an anti-creation story. It's supposed to be saying, no, that's not the case. Actually, you were born into peace because of who you were created to be and you're there to subdue the chaos. You're supposed to be actually ruling and reigning over the chaos. And so when you think about that idol image stuff in terms of what it means to be the image and likeness of God, it's profound because whereas every other idol of the foreign religions were mute and dumb, they basically couldn't live up to the expectation that was heaped on them by the religions. Here's the difference with the nation of Israel, the God of Israel, the one true God of the universe. The idols he made, which is essentially you, me, the whole of humanity, we are actually capable of embodying the presence and the power of the God we're made in the image of. That is an incredibly profound thought. That is an amazing, amazing example of what it means to be human. We are made to be in God's presence. We are most at home in God's presence. We are created to enjoy the presence of God. And so how do we do that? There's a sense in which when we gather together here on Sunday, there's something actually quite special going on. There's something really important happening. And it's encapsulated in the reading that Precious gave us from 1 Peter. Essentially, this whole reading is about what it means to be the temple. So you don't need to know the detail of this, but the Jewish nation, basically, they believed that the temple was God's house. It's where God dwelt. And so you see throughout the Bible, um, essentially, the importance of the temple being underlined time and time again. So when they were in exile, they would put um, the Ten Commandments into the Ark of the Covenant. That literally represented the presence of God. And when they settled, they set up a tabernacle where they put that Ark, and that's where they believed the presence of God actually dwelt. If fast forward into Solomon's time, and Solomon, they've 
entered the promised land and they build the temple. They believe that God dwelt in the temple. And so here's what Peter's actually saying. And this is to Christians. This is to people who have believed in Jesus, been filled with the Holy Spirit. He says this, you also like living stones, not bricks that make up a building. Living stones are being built into the spiritual house of God. So what happens in God's house? Well, in the context of the temple in the Old Testament, when Solomon finally built the temple, and if you read about the building of Solomon's temple in 1 Kings, essentially all of the kind of metaphor, all of the imagery there represents what happened in Eden. Basically, it's a mirror image of Eden, God's original temple. Building the temple again, this is what happens. When he consecrates the temple, it says in there, that a cloud filled the temple. What's a cloud? Cloud basically represents the glory of God. The glory of God filled the temple, and here's the key bit. The priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. They couldn't do their service because of the glory of God. I long for a time when we gather together as a church that God's glory comes in such power that actually I don't need to speak partly will save on prep time, but it also be amazing because that is the point. We are being built as living stones into the house of God. What happens in the house of God? God's glory falls. There's something special about what happens when we gather together. Jesus says, when two or more are gathered in my name, there I am also. We should be expecting when we come to worship, we're being built as living stones into the temple. Forget the building. It doesn't matter about the building. We could do this anywhere. We could do it outside if it was warm, if only. We are being built into this spiritual temple. What happens in the temple? God's glory falls. What happens when God's glory falls? We can ditch all of the programs. We can ditch all of the stuff that we've planned because the whole point is when God's glory is there, we're able to do what we were created to do, which is to enjoy his presence. Everything we do in church, and so many people have opinions on what we should do in church, that is probably the most, this is the basis of all church disunity in the whole of the earth. What do we do in church? Everything we do in this church is supposed to be able to open ourselves as a community to the presence of God. In fact, everything we do, none of it is an end in and of itself. We don't sing songs for the sake of singing songs. I don't speak for the sake of speaking. We don't pray for the sake of praying. The whole point of everything that we're doing is so that we can open ourselves to encounter Jesus, so that we can open ourselves to actually being filled with the glory of God. That is the whole point. If in five years' time, all we've done here is we've created some nice programs and we do worship really well and we get some fairly witty speaking and it's funny and it's engaging and it's good and we have a time where we feel really good about ourselves but then we go away and we don't experience the glory of God honestly I'll leave like I've, I've studied law at uni I'll probably try and get back into that there's loads more money in it I actually don't think there's any point meeting together unless we're encountering the glory of God I really don't I mean it sounds quite extreme but I really don't think there is so what do we need to do in order to see that happen we need to come open we need to come ready We need to come expecting that God is going to fill this place with his glory, that we're going to meet him. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach, which basically means wind. And it kind of signifies what the spirit's like in the Old Testament. Essentially, it's like an uncontrollable force of nature. Like you can't tame it. You can't domesticate the spirit. I say it, him. You can't it just feels like it's uncontrollable. It comes as a wind or as a fire or as a hurricane. And for the people of God, it's terrifying. 
wind in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the word for the Holy Spirit is pneuma, which means breath. When my eldest daughter was born, Elia, um, she had a traumatic birth in the... Um, Every time now had a contraction, essentially her heart rate would slow. And so because this was happening for a long period of time, they decided that they were going to perform an emergency C-section. And I remember um, kind of in the prep up to um, Elliot now going into labor, I remember them saying, if we do have to do a C-section, this is what it would be like. And there'll be loads of people in the room and you have to scrub up and go in with her. And so we did all of this and she's rushed into the surgery room. And I'm kind of thinking, well, it's not to plan, like it's not great, but let's get this baby out, let's do this. Um, and I was high on many different things. And so we go into the room and they manage, literally they have to prise Elia out of Hanel's pelvis with many different things. I didn't watch, but I heard it. And she comes out and I was told, Ben, don't panic when the baby comes out. If for uh, 10 seconds or so, the baby doesn't cry. Like the baby will be fine. You just have to wait, be patient. And then suddenly the baby um, will kind of realize what's happened and start crying. And so... Elia comes out and is being held by the doctor and about 30 seconds in, she's still not cried. Um, one minute, two minutes goes by. The, the doctors, by this point, are getting a bit frantic. Four minutes, five minutes. They then start rushing to the cupboard and then pulling stuff out the cupboard. I'm sitting there literally watching doctors panic, which is never what you want to see when your child has just been born. Eight minutes, nine minutes, ten minutes. Finally... Elia takes her first breath and starts crying. I have never been so desperate for breath in my entire life. It was literally like everything stopped and I was willing for her to breathe. And here's the point that the writers of the Bible are making between the Holy Spirit in the old and the new. Breath to us physically is exactly the same as the Holy Spirit is to us spiritually. We are dead without it. In order to be the people we're created to be, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, how much more will God the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Paul says, go on, don't get drunk on wine, which is interesting parallel, right? Because it probably looks a bit like you're drunk when you're filled with the Spirit. Don't get drunk on wine, be filled with the Spirit. What's going to happen as we're filled with the Spirit? We'll start to see stuff like the spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians. We're gonna, I'm going to speak about it. Let's do a series on it after the Jesus series. And we'll start to see this sort of thing. We'll start to see healing, miracles, signs and wonders of the kingdom of God. We'll have incredibly accurate prophecies. There'll be words of knowledge that an unbeliever, someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, will come in the back of the room. They'll hear a word of knowledge and they'll fall to the floor and they'll say, surely God is in this place. That was so accurate and exactly where I was at. We'll see unbelievable spiritual gifts. What else happened? It's not just about the fancy gifts. It's about the fruits of the Spirit. We'll see more joy, more love, more peace, more patience, more kindness, more gentleness, more self-control. There will be unbelievable love in this place in terms of the fruits of the Spirit. We'll also have people regularly coming in and experiencing the Spirit. And guess what? This is the most common thing I hear when people come into a spiritual-filled church. People who have never been to church before, they come in and every time they say, it feels like I've come home. It feels like I've come home. What are they saying there? This isn't home. It's freezing. It's freezing in here. If my home was this cold, I would sell it and go to a different... We should sell this. We should sell it and go to a warmer home. That's not the point. What they're saying is, spiritually, I've come home. What does that mean? They're created to enjoy the presence of God. It's core to who they are. They just didn't know it. And when they experienced it, they came alive. They felt like they came home. That is the point of what we're doing.
And that's why we're a family on mission, but we're also about bringing people home. Let's stand and we're going to pray. Let's just shut our eyes just so we're not distracted. Do you know what this whole, sorry, open your eyes. So the Wimber model, like we use the Wimber model here, which is essentially um, something that some Americans brought to the UK church in the 80s. I don't even know, I wasn't born. And the point is you shut your eyes, you put your hands out, you look a bit weird, like a penguin, and you wait in silence for the Holy Spirit on the basis of that prayer that Jesus said, how much more will God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? The reason we use it is because actually it means we're not whipping people up into like an emotional further. Like it's actually God that does it. When you're waiting in silence, it's incredibly awkward, especially for English people. And so therefore we use the model because actually it's the most kind of unobtrusive, the most unmanipulative kind of way of asking for God's presence to come. That's why we use it. But to be honest, like, for a long time now, we've been waiting in silence like that, and it doesn't feel like God's really shown up in power, and I don't think that's, you know, what it is. I, I, I just think, actually, let's not rely on the model. Let's allow God to do whatever he wants to do, but to be honest, I'm going to keep doing the model just because I'm stubborn. No, I'm not stubborn, because um, actually, I think it's probably the best one we've got. I mean, there's other models we could do to whip people up, and, you know, I could start shouting at you, but I don't think it will work, and it will be awkward for most English people. So I think, actually, just waiting in silence, asking for the Spirit to come, it's probably a good way of doing it. If God reveals something else in some other way, I'd love God to break out during the talk. It would mean I don't have to finish it. I'd love God to break out during the worship, and then we can just do that, and that would be fun. I'd love God to break out as we come in through the doors at the, at the beginning. That would be really fun, whilst we're having croissants, kind of croissants and prayer. But... The point is, this is what we're doing at the moment, and we're going to carry on. So let's wait. Let's close our eyes. You don't have to. You don't have to hold your hands out. It's just a physical way of saying, God, I'm open to you. It says so much more than crossing your arms. And just in your heart and your mind, ask the Holy Spirit to come. How much more will God the Father give the Spirit to those who ask? How do we get it? We ask. That's all Jesus says. Jesus, we are desperate for your Holy Spirit. We're desperate for your presence. 